You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open the Holy Scriptures together. We turn this morning to Paul's letter to the Church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 17 to verse 34. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 17, the scripture reading is chosen in connection with our text, which has to do with the Lord's Supper. As you can see, Lord's Days 29 and 30 deal with the sacrament of our Lord's Supper. And we find quite a bit of that supper explained here in 1 Corinthians 11. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. But I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, you should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further directions. I preached to you this morning from the word of our God as the church summarizes and confesses this in Lord's Days 29 and also 30 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 29, beginning at question and answer 78, are then the bread and wine changed into the real body and blood of Christ? No. Just as the water of baptism is not changed into the blood of Christ and is not the washing away of sins itself, but is simply God's sign and pledge, so also the bread in the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself, 
although it is called Christ's body in keeping with the nature and usage of sacraments. Why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood or the new covenant in his blood? And why does Paul speak of a participation in the body and blood of Christ? Christ speaks in this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us by his supper that as bread and wine sustain us in this temporal life, so his crucified body and shed blood are true food and drink for our souls to eternal life. But even more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge, first, that through the working of the Holy Spirit we share in his true body and blood as surely as we receive with our mouths these holy signs in remembrance of him. And second, that all his suffering and obedience are as certainly ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Papal Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us first that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. And second, that through the Holy Spirit we are grafted into Christ who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father and this is where he wants to be worshipped. But the Mass teaches first that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ unless he is still offered for them daily by the priests. And second, that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine and there is to be worshipped. Therefore, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. Who are to come to the table of the Lord? Those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins and yet trust that these are forgiven them and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. But hypocrites and those who do not repent, eat, and drink judgment upon themselves. Are those also to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who by their confession and life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No. For then the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, according to the command of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven, until they amend their lives. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, do you love controversy? Do you love it when people raise their voices, get angry at one another, call each other names and walk away mad? Do you love it when they climb into their pens and write all sorts of papers and essays and emails against one another? Do you love it when people no longer speak to one another and associate with one another because they have issues together? If you're like most people, you probably hate controversy. You know something about the damage it can do in relationships, in families, and in churches? You know all about the stresses and the strains that it fosters. You know the harm and the hurt it causes. In short, controversy is never pleasant. 
And we should avoid it as much as we possibly can. But nevertheless, it's not always possible. Sometimes controversy cannot be avoided. If truth is at stake, especially God's truth, then it becomes unavoidable. After all, divine truth is more important than our feelings and even than our emotions. And I might add, even than our relationships. Yes, and that's also evident here in these Lord's Days 29 and 30. You know, it's strange, but sacraments are beautiful things. They're probably the most beautiful things in the Church of Jesus Christ. And yet, they're full of disagreement. We saw that last time in connection with baptism. And we see it even more here today in connection with the Lord's Supper. And indeed, beloved, if you look at the history of the Christian church, you would have to say that the greatest controversies in the church have been about the doctrine of the triune God, the two natures of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Why churches have split over this, wars have been fought over it. Unbelievable, perhaps, but true. And I might add, today the carnage continues. Still, churches are divided and dividing over different views of what is and should really be the most unifying and uniting meal in all the world. And so what are the issues, what are the controversies? Well, beloved, I preached to you this morning on the following theme, a controversial meal. And we're going to see there's controversy about the elements, about its focus, as well as its participants. Well, over the first, and historically the biggest dispute surrounding the Lord's Supper has been about what we might call the elements. In other words, how is one to understand the reference to bread and to wine in the Lord's Supper? Now, on the surface, of course, all of this appears to be rather silly. We say to ourselves, bread is bread, wine is wine, so what's there to argue about here? What's the problem? Well, the problem is, beloved, how are we to interpret the words of our Lord Jesus Christ? When he instituted the Lord's Supper and he held up the bread, he said, this is my body which is for you. And thereafter he held up the cup with the wine in it and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So how are we to understand this is my body and this is my blood? Are these words meant to be taken literally? Or are these words meant to be taken figuratively or symbolically? Now, beloved, the Roman church, before, at, and after the time of the Reformation, decided that these words are to be taken literally. Literally and, you might add, miraculously. It insisted, and it still insists, that the bread changes and becomes the real body or flesh of Jesus Christ. 
And it insists as well that the wine becomes the real blood. The actual blood of Jesus Christ. And the result is that when believers eat and drink in this meal, it is said they are eating and they are drinking the real, actual, physical flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. That somehow the Spirit makes the bread and the wine into the true flesh and blood of Christ. So really what is involved in every celebration of the Lord's Supper or every celebration of the Mass is an actual dining, so to speak, on Christ. Now in light of that particular teaching, the Heidelberg Catechism asks in question 78, are then the bread and the wine changed into the real body and blood of Christ? In other words, is this all true? Has Rome got it right? Is this the correct way to sing and to understand and to apply the words of our Lord? And the answer of the catechism comes with an emphatic no. This is not the way to approach this particular meal. Well, why not? Well, notice the catechism says, look at baptism. When it comes to baptism, do we say that the water somehow changes character or substance? Do we hold that the water of baptism somehow miraculously becomes the blood of Christ? No. We hold, and the Roman Catholic Church agrees, that water here remains water. The element, in other words, doesn't change. But then the next question surfaces, and it is this, if, if the bread and the wine do not change, why does Christ speak in this way? Why does he use this kind of language? And the answer, beloved, well, very simply because he's teaching us. Indeed, how often do the Gospels not show our Lord teaching us in, in this kind of a manner? For example, at times the Lord Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I am the door, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd, I am the way. And are we then to assume that Christ is telling us that he turns into an actual loaf of bread or into a a real door or into a, a huge light bulb that lights up the world? or into a grubby shepherd, or into a paved road. I think we can all see how ridiculous that would be. Beloved, in all of these instances and more, what he is doing is he's speaking symbolically. And the same applies here in Lord's Days 29. Look at answer 79. When Christ refers to bread and wine, he is saying to us that just as these elements keep us alive physically and materially, so he is the one who sustains our spiritual life. He's the one who nourishes our soul. And he's the one who does it all the way to eternal life. 
Bread and wine are sacramental signs. By them and through them, Christ is teaching us and reminding us that you cannot live the Christian life alone. You need to live it out of him. Yes, and by these signs, he's also assuring us of something. He's busy promising and pledging. He's telling us that through faith in him, we get to share in, in his very life and in his very nature and in his very work. And he's guaranteeing us as well that our sins have really and truly been paid for. In other words, as you go through this life, do not doubt. Do not live in uncertainty. Do not live in fear of judgment. Now live boldly. Live out of my promises every day. Live out of the fact that I have broken my body for you and that I have shed my blood for you. And therefore truly you can live without fear and without insecurity. But then, beloved, if there is disagreement here about how to understand and apply the bread and the wine of the sacrament, there is also another disagreement here. Some call it a disagreement between the Lord's Supper and the Papal Mass. Now, it might interest you to know that the original German edition of the Heidelberg Catechism had no numbers, and it only had in it what we have in answers, question and answers 81 and 82. Question and answer 80 was not in the original edition. When the second edition appeared, numbers were added, and also question and answer 80 was added, but then in very short form. And later in 1563, a third German edition appeared, in which question and answer 80 was longer and as we have it today and before us this morning. So we ask ourselves, why? Why was question and answer 80 added to the catechism? And why, as well, was it made even longer? Well, beloved, it was to refute what the Roman Church had just stated in its Council of Trent about the Mass and all who disagreed with the Mass. Frederick III, the ruler of the Palatinate and the originator of the Heidelberg Catechism, wanted his people taught about this latest development. He wanted to impress it on their hearts and on their minds. And why? You might ask, why was it so important for Frederick that he, he felt it necessary to add to the Catechism? Well, beloved, because he felt very strongly that the stress on the Mass was an attack on Christ. That it undermined the work and the worship of Christ. And how did it do so? Well, it did so, he said, by means of what might call a misplaced focus. But where should the focus in the Church of Jesus Christ be? It should be on Christ, of course. 
But where on Christ? Well, in the first place, beloved, you can say on his finished, completed, redeeming work. Does the letter to the Hebrews not say over and over again that Christ died once for all? And does it not state categorically that he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself? Now, if that is true, why then is he still being offered up every day and every week in the Roman church? Why this endless parade of offering when the final complete and finished offering has taken place? And in this way, Frederick said, the focus is not on the finished work of Jesus Christ, but the focus is on the unfinished, uncompleted work of Christ. It robs him of his glory. But there's also something else. For our focus, beloved, should not only be on the finished, redeeming work of Jesus Christ, but it should also be on his ascended person. Where is Christ today? Where should we look? In what direction should our eyes and our hearts go? Why, the biblical answer is up, up, up. Paul says, set your hearts on things above. And why? Well, because you have been raised with Christ. And because that is where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's where your focus has to be every day. Not down. And certainly not down in the dumps, but up. The glory for Christ is. And you may have noticed, beloved, this particular stress and emphasis is found back in our form for the Lord's Supper. On page 600 of the Book of Praise, we read, Brothers and sisters, in order that we may now be nourished with Christ, the true heavenly bread, we must not cling with our hearts to the outward symbols of bread and wine, but lift our hearts on high in heaven, where Christ our advocate is at the right hand of his heavenly Father. This part of the form is known by the Latin term sursum corda. Lift up your hearts. Yes, and it's a reminder that when we eat the bread and drink from the cup of the Lord's Supper, we are not to focus on them, nor are we to dwell on them. Nor are we to insist too dogmatically on them. For remember, we must not cling with our hearts to the outward symbols of bread and wine. It's sad to say that's what some people do. They put so much stress on the outward, on the lower symbols, that they miss the real focus of the Lord's Supper. 
which is the risen, ascended, and ruling Jesus Christ. And they make matters of bread and wine such a big deal that they forget about the real focal point of this supper. We do not worship the bread and the wine and turn them into idols. No, we worship Christ, our heavenly exalted head. But then, beloved, if there is controversy about the elements and the focus of the Lord's Supper, there's also controversy about the participants. Who may participate of the Lord's Supper? Who has access? And maybe here we have one of the hottest issues in Reformed churches today. There is a new church federation in North America which has as one of its hallmarks that children may partake of the Lord's Supper. And there are some who are of the opinion that all who profess Christ should be able to partake regardless of where they church and on the basis only of their own personal private convictions. And there are others who insist that only members of certain Reformed churches who come with a written attestation may partake. So how do we make sense of all this maze of opinions? Well, surely, beloved, the only way to tackle these issues fundamentally is to ask ourselves, what now do the Scriptures say? In other words, as important as tradition may be, and it is important, and as important as our confessions and our church order may be, and they are important, it are still the Scriptures that represent the basic rule of faith and life. Read only Article 5 of the Belgian Confession to be reminded about the authority and the supremacy of the Holy Scriptures in the life of the church. So what do the Scriptures say about all of these current issues? In all fairness, we have to say, not too much. The Scriptures do not give us all kinds of rules and regulations here. There is no specific text dealing with children at the Lord's Supper. There is no chapter and verse calling forth for attestations. Indeed, there's very little to be found in the entire Bible when it comes to the actual administration of the Lord's Supper. Of how it is to be done. Questions about the manner of celebration, the frequency of celebration, the procedures of celebration are by and large not answered. So what should all of this do? You know, beloved, all of this, I think, first of all, should make us very careful. And I would add to that, it should also make us rather charitable. Obviously, when it comes to the mechanics, and I stress the word mechanics of the Lord's Supper, there is a lot of freedom and flexibility depending on the time, the place, and the circumstances. 
And throughout the centuries and still today around the world, the Lord's Supper has been and is being celebrated in many different ways. And then we need to be cautious and we need to say that our way is not necessarily the only way. You know, if the scriptures were specific, then we would need to follow their instructions to T. The absence of specifics is a call for us to be circumspect and careful in our judgments. But still, beloved, having said all of that, does that mean that it doesn't matter who participates? Is it a free-for-all? No, not at all. For while the Scriptures do not furnish us with every answer in detail, they do lay down some basic principles that we need to recognize, adhere, and implement. And the first principle, surely, beloved, is this when it comes to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and that is that this is a holy meal. You cannot compare the Lord's Supper to a meal that you have at home or to a meal at McDonald's. Now, this is a sacred meal. This is a meal instituted by Christ. It's a meal that has to honor Christ. It's even a spiritual meal in which Christ is spiritually present. And because of that, beloved, there is also a second principle, which is that this meal requires also due consideration or proper preparation. You cannot approach it and partake of it just just as you are. You know, casually, in a relaxed kind of easygoing manner. That's what Simon Corinth did in Disaster struck. Eating and drinking in an unworthy manner means, it says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 27, means sinning against the body and blood of Christ. And those who eat and drink without recognizing the body of Christ eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Sure, beloved, this is a blessed meal for the properly spiritually prepared. But for the improperly prepared, it's dangerous, if not even deadly. In Corinth, some partook in an unworthy manner. And Paul says they became sick. And some even died. So, beloved, personal preparation is a necessity. And what is personal preparation? Well, look at answer 81. It's about sin, salvation, service, the same threefold division that you have in the catechism. It's about knowing your sin. 
It's about seeking your salvation outside of yourself in Jesus Christ. It's about serving your God in holiness all the days of your life. And in the process, it's also being aware of hypocrisy. You need to search your heart to make sure that your participation is real and genuine and out of face. You shouldn't be a Judas the Iscariot or a Simon the sorcerer. Prepare and partake properly. But then, beloved, there's also another principle. A principle that needs to be recognized, and that is that this is, to some extent, also a supervised meal. And what do I mean by that, and where does that come from? Well, look at question and answer 82. It says that admitting the unbelieving and the ungodly to this particular meal has consequences for both covenant and congregation. Unholy participation leads to a profaned covenant and to a congregation under wrath. Now, where does that come from? In part, beloved, it also comes from what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 10. But it also draws through some Old Testament principles. For example, Psalm 50 teaches that the wicked have no right to recite God's laws or to speak about God's covenant. And Isaiah chapter 1 says that rank disobedience can pollute a whole community and bring judgment on an entire congregation. In other words, partaking of something holy in the church is not just between you and God. It has corporate consequences. It results in communal fallout. So, beloved, who safeguards and defends the well-being of the community? Whose task and whose responsibility is that? Well, if you know the Old Testament, you know that in the Old Testament it was responsibility of the elder in the gate and the prophet on the wall. It was their sacred trust to protect the community, to promote and uphold the holiness of the community. And the New Testament says the same about the office of elder. Paul says to Timothy that the elders are to direct the affairs of the church, that he's to appoint elders in every place that he goes to where there is a church of Jesus Christ being established. And elsewhere, Scripture says, the heavier the responsibility, the greater the judgment. These men have great responsibility. And that responsibility has great consequences, especially if it is abused. 
And so, beloved, it is the members who must prepare themselves properly. And it are the elders who must govern well and so protect the well-being of the congregation. To safeguard the congregation of Jesus Christ from judgment. And one of the ways they do that is by ensuring as much as possible that all those who partake, partake as true believers. And as to precisely how they are to do that, well, that's not specified. But the fact that they should do so, that is understood. You can only be part of a holy congregation in this way. And of course you ask, where does that leave the matter of children at the Lord's Supper? I remind you in the Reformed churches we have never set a magic age. But at the same time the principle is rather simple. They must be able to examine themselves and profess their faith and the triune God. And where does that leave the matter of guests at the Lord's Supper? Fencing the table by the preaching of the gospel and the form is one way. And the use of attestations is an added and additional way. But the point is that all who partake must be true professors of the faith. A holy Savior calls for a holy meal. And a holy meal calls for a holy people. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.